Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to episode 216 of Real Life Ghost Stories. And to kick things off this week, we need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Satu Anderson, Ash, April, James Wilson, Martin J. Pawson, Aileen Melia, Raffrox, Gracie Lawless, The Solitary Dragon, Carolyn, Deborah Smith, Lula Hoops, Beth Ketelar, Flaming June, Kathy McIntyre, Renee Valois, and Jenny Prouse. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week, our film review is Nandor Fodor and the Talking Mongoose. Nandor Fodor and the Talking Mongoose was released in 2023. It has 5.3 out of 10 on IMDb and 46% on Rotten Tomatoes. When famed paranormal psychologist Dr. Nandor Fodor investigates a family's claim of a talking animal, he uncovers a mysterious web of hidden motives. Soon, everyone becomes a suspect in his relentless pursuit of the truth. Now, as you guys know, the story of Jeff the Talking Mongoose is one of my favourite paranormal stories ever. However, I will say that I did not go into this film with a preconceived notion of what it was going to be like based on that story because the story is so bonkers I was like I don't know how they're going to frame this I don't know which way this is going to go so let's get into my likes to start us off like I said the story of Jeff is one of my favorite paranormal stories and I was super excited about this film the story of Jeff brings me so much joy because it's so bizarre and ridiculous and fun and I couldn't wait to see it immortalized in a film I also really like Simon Pegg as an actor I love the Cornetto trilogy there I think they're absolutely fantastic films and I kind of maybe wrongly thought because obviously it's not an Edgar Wright film as in the director Edgar Wright but I, I think I wrongly thought that Jeff the Mongoose or Nandor Fodor that story was going to have some of that similar whimsy and fun and silliness Simon Pegg was fabulous as Nandor Fodor. He was a very believable character. His accent, by the way, was also stunning. I was really impressed with it. He plays Nandor Fodor as this sort of frustratingly humourless, serious man. But it kind of added to his charm. Like once you got used to him being this very serious man who took everything very seriously and there was no room for jokes when it came to the paranormal kind of you got you got to like him a little bit and he becomes throughout the story increasingly frustrated with 
the con that is Jeff the Mongoose. And you can really feel his frustration with the whole setup as he battles with cynicism and what is undoubtedly unusual phenomena. And along with him, I really wanted to know. I wanted a definite answer as to what was going on. I really liked how the Irving family were portrayed. They were kind of all at the same time, quirky and strange and sweet and a little bit cunning. And I liked them. I liked the way they were portrayed. It was hard not to like them, even though there was a huge part of you throughout the whole story that was like, these people are lying and I want to know why and I want to know how they're doing it. And Minnie Driver played Nandor Fodor's like personal assistant and she did it really well because she was a good foil to his really super serious, frustratingly earnest character. And I actually, what I wasn't expecting when I was watching this is the way that they used the story of Jeff as a vessel to probe like deep and existential questions and important questions about life after death and what happens after we die and can we come back? Are we able to come back and communicate with the people that we love? And really it was like it asked questions about grief and sadness and the things that we do to try and convince ourselves that our people who have passed, that they're somewhere else, that they're watching over us, that they're safe, that they're happy. And I wasn't expecting that from this film. I really wasn't. There were genuine existential questions that were thrown out there in a serious way and Nandor Fodor's frustration I think partly comes from his quest and his desire to answer those questions while also dealing with the loss of his father. None of this I expected from this film. Which brings me to the dislikes and I'm going to be really frank here and again like I like I always say if you really liked this film that is no shade on you please do not <laughs> send me messages saying that I just didn't get it, I just didn't understand it, etc. Frankly, I just found it boring. I thought it was boring. There was so much beauty in it, genuinely. There was beautiful scenery, beautiful acting, and those big life questions were in there, but I didn't think there was a balance to it. Fundamentally, the story of Jeff the Mongoose it's weird and it's funny and it's wonderful but I really did not feel like there was joy or humour in this film and I think it could have been beautifully balanced between that you know beautiful scenery really good serious acting big life questions and a lot of tongue-in-cheek humour about how absolutely utterly absurd the whole situation is so there were kind of long philosophical conversations between Nandor Fodor and Harry Price. Obviously, Harry Price, again, a very famous person in the paranormal world. Christopher Lloyd randomly plays Harry Price, which I was a bit surprised at. But, you know, it's a film about a talking mongoose. We just embrace it and we move on. And they became a bit tedious. These big, long monologuing conversations about life and death and existentialism and philosophy they became a bit tedious to watch I was thinking to myself yeah but where's the mongoose bring in Jeff have these conversations with Jeff not with each other and that's not me saying that these conversations weren't good interesting conversations I mean they were just not in the context of this film and not taking up such an amount of screen time. 
And I get it. It was trying to demonstrate the fact that Nandor Fodor was struggling personally with his own cynicism, etc., etc. I understand why it was portrayed in the film. I just didn't find it particularly interesting after a while. I mean, at its very core, this is a film about a man investigating a talking mongoose. And how am I sitting here saying that it wasn't funny enough or ridiculous enough or whimsical enough? It just, it needed more Jeff. (laughs) Okay. As with everything in the paranormal world, it needed more Jeff. And I'm sorry to say that this film is two and a half stars for me. I will say it is worth a watch for the acting is very good. The scenery is beautiful. And there are some, if I was in any way kind of engaged with film studies, there are probably some very beautiful shots in this film. There is a lot of good in terms of conversations about existential questions. But I didn't find it particularly fun or engaging. So it is two and a half stars from me. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. Which brings us swiftly to our story this week. Now, my source for this week's story is a book called Superstition, The True Story of the Nanny They Called a Witch by Carol Compton with Gerald Cole. Now, if you're hearing this and you're seeing the title of this episode and you're thinking, oh, we've we've done witch trial stories. You know what I mean? Like we, we know what happens. Somebody gets accused of being a witch. It's awful. We move on. This is a witch trial story with a bit of a difference in that it is modern It is not remotely what I thought it was going to be. It is very unexpected, a very strange story. And uh, yeah, let's, let's just dive straight into it. I try and avoid talking about witch trials on the podcast, or at least I try and spread witch stories out, because the narrative often follows the same pattern. That doesn't make what the women and men who were accused of witchcraft endured any less harrowing. We also generally talk about witch trials as though they are a far-off, forgotten phenomenon, as though witch trials and accusations of witchcraft are a thing that is consigned to the past. But every so often, a story comes along that seems wildly anachronistic in the modern world. Of course, there are people out there who are actively practising witchcraft, and there are places in the world still to this day where it is a dangerous thing to be thought of as a witch. I came across this story by accident and shared a condensed version of it on Patreon. But I was so enthralled by it that I went on the hunt for the book written by the woman at the centre of this story. 
Some of you may remember the news headlines about this story, and some of you will be shocked and angered by the twists and turns. But for me, the shocking thing about this story is that unlike most witch trial stories, there is a belief that this really does have its roots in the paranormal. Our story starts in Ayr in Scotland in December 1981, and our story starts with love. Carol and Marco were deeply in love. That shiny, wild, sparkly love of two young people at the prime of their lives. Carol was born and raised in Scotland, and Marco was Italian and working as a waiter in her local town. They'd been seeing each other for two years, but the time had come for Marco to return to Italy. He was required to return for military service. But before he did so, he proposed to Carol, and she made the decision to return to Italy with him. It's fair to say that her family weren't happy. They were young, barely even in their 20s. Her mother was terrified. Her grandmother was terrified. Their girl disappearing off into another country with a young man. But Carol and Marco were determined, and they left air behind and made their way to beautiful, sunny Rome. When they arrived at the airport, all of Marco's family were there waiting for them. They were warm and welcoming and embraced Carol like one of their own, telling her how happy they were to finally meet her, telling her that she was a part of the family now, and Carol immediately felt at home. The only member of the family that she struggled with was the cat. She never liked cats, and her negative reaction to the family cat raised some eyebrows. After a joyous period of being tourists in Rome, it was time for Marco to start his army service and time for Carol to find a job. She quickly got a job as a nanny to a wealthy Italian family in the city while Marco began his training a three-hour train journey away. She was tasked with looking after the family's young son. The boy's mother was kind and welcoming, full of chat and positivity, and while Carol had her reservations, she was confident that she could make this work. Rosa did not seem so sure. Rosa was the maid of the family and had been there for many years. Carol got the distinct impression that Rosa did not like her. Or, at least, that Rosa felt as though Carol was in the way or treading on her toes. Carol reasoned that this was inevitable, but Rosa's behaviour at times was strange. One day, Carol was walking down the corridor towards the kitchen when she heard a crash behind her. She turned and saw that a small, framed religious picture had crashed to the ground. She assumed that she must have brushed past it as she was walking down the dark corridor and accidentally knocked it to the ground. She tutted and went to pick the picture up and realised that she wasn't alone in the corridor. Rosa was watching her in horror. She looked terrified, and in a frenzy of panic, she began shouting in Italian, pointing at Carol and the religious picture that was now in her hand. Taken aback and unable to understand Rosa, Carol put the picture down with trembling hands, and she realised that Rosa was praying. A few weeks later, the woman of the house, Miss Ricci, needed to go to Paris and decided that it would be good for Carol and little Emmanuel to go to the Alps with his grandparents. Miss Ricci's brother, her parents and her father's carer, Nicole, would all be coming on this trip. In truth, Carol didn't want to go, 
She would be away from Rome for weeks and she doubted that it would be as easy to telephone Marco in the evenings. And in truth, she struggled. The holiday home was beautiful, but Miss Ricci wasn't there and without her, Carol felt uncomfortable. Miss Ricci's parents spoke no English and Carol spoke very little Italian. Luckily, Nicole, the carer, spoke good English and could act as an interpreter and friend for Carol while she was away. She missed Rome and she missed Marco. The weeks passed, however, in the Alps and one beautiful, warm day, everything changed. The World Cup final was on. Italy were playing Germany and Grandfather Ricci was glued to the television to watch it. It was the evening time and would soon be time for little Emmanuel to go to bed. But Nicole convinced Carol to go out for an evening stroll, to take in the last of the warmth of the day. They walked through the village and up the hill and surveyed the land beneath them. When they saw it, smoke was rising billowing from the house that they had just left. They ran back down the hill, Carol carrying Emmanuel, and burst through the door of the house. They practically had to drag Grandfather Ricci from the house. He was reluctant to initially leave the football, and then his belongings. The fire brigade arrived and believed that potentially a faulty wire had sparked a fire beneath the wooden floorboards which had spread quickly through the bedroom. The family were very lucky that it hadn't been worse. The Ricci's and Carol and Nicole were put up in a three-bedroom flat close by. But this was not the end. The next day, Grandmother Ricci paced through the house complaining that she could smell burning. Carol and Nicole believed that she was just worried since the fire until she pulled a smouldering piece of paper from the rubbish bin. She stared directly at Carol, the smouldering paper still in her hand. You, smoking, she accused. But Carol had never smoked in her life. Carol felt something pass between herself and Grandmother Ricci, an imperceptible something. Like she was being judged, but she couldn't quite understand what she was being judged for. Grandmother Ricci phoned Miss Ricci and ranted at her in Italian. Carol listened, but the only thing that she could make out was her name, which was being said over and over again. But she could hear the anger in Grandmother Ricci's voice. And she could hear that that anger was tinged with fear. Eventually, she passed the phone to Carol, and Miss Ricci, all the way in Paris, asked her a series of questions. Was she happy? Did she need somebody to talk to? Carol was utterly perplexed, but the horror did not end there. It was only days later and Carol was playing with little Emmanuel in his bedroom. She heard the sound of frantic footsteps thudding down the hall and then Miss Ricci's brother Enrico was hammering on the door screaming, Fire! Fire! Carol thought that he was joking until he threw open the door, towel wrapped around him and hair dripping wet from the shower. Carol, quick, help, there's a fire! Carol ran to the hallway and saw smoke billowing from the door of Grandmother Ricci's room. She ran to the kitchen and filled a saucepan with water. Grandmother Ricci's bed was alight, a fire blazed in the middle of the bed. Between Carol and Enrico, 
They managed to put the fire out, but he was immediately angry with her. Carol, did you not hear the doorbell? Did you not smell the smoke? She hadn't. Grandfather Ricci had been ringing the doorbell which had drawn Enrico out of the shower, at which point he realised that there was a fire. Carol had heard and smelled nothing. Soon she received a phone call from Miss Ricci to say that Carol's services were no longer required in the home. Miss Ricci framed it as nicely as she could. She said that she was bringing everyone back to Rome and wanted her parents to move in with her and as a result there would be no room for Carol and that Carol could return potentially in September. And although Carol would miss little Emmanuel fiercely, she had no choice but to accept and go back to Marco's family. But even that was only a temporary option. The house was cramped and there simply wasn't the room for her, nor was there the money to look after her if she wasn't working. She had to just find another job. And luckily for her, she did. This time, a Mrs. Tonti wanted her to look after her three-year-old daughter, Agnese. Carol was happy to get another job, and if she was honest, she was happy to not be in the presence of Marco's family's bloody cat all the time. She detested it. It would have mad half an hours where it would run wild and scratch everything in sight, and Carol hated it. Mrs. Tonti, whose name was Daniela, had come to Marco's home for the interview and had noticed Carol's dislike of cats. She explained that there would be cats on the island of Elba, where they had a home, and that Carol should be prepared for this. The house on Elba was actually the home of Mr. Tonti's parents. His name was Luigi and his English was limited, but he seemed nice enough. When they arrived at the house, it was clear that his mother did not approve of Carol immediately. Carol knew enough Italian to understand that she had asked why they'd gotten another English girl and not a good Italian girl. Carol did not think it was wise to point out that she wasn't English, but Scottish, an important distinction. Luigi's father was a big man with a cigarette dangling from his mouth, and he virtually ignored her. She realised very quickly that the grandparents may prove to be a problem, but she also realised that she was essentially a guest in their home, and that she would do her best to not get in the way and just do what she was told. Her place in the family was immediately made clear. While on the beach, Carol had been chatting on the beach with Daniela while Luigi was in the water with little Agnese. Agnese slipped off her lilo and went under the water. When Luigi pulled her out, both Daniela and Luigi immediately blamed Carol. Carol was perplexed. Luigi had literally been beside her in the water at the time, but yet it was somehow her fault. She couldn't begin to understand it. And yet, what could she say? She just had to stand, shamefaced, on the beach while Daniela and Luigi shouted at her. That evening, as she helped Agnese wash her hands in the bathroom, a familiar event unfolded. Daniela burst into the bathroom, shouting at her to get Agnese out of the house. Carl was frightened and confused, but she did as she was told. She bundled up the child and ran from the house. And as she ran, she saw smoke billowing from the grandparents' room. The mattress was on fire, a bright blaze right in the centre. Carol was terrified. Oh God, please don't let this be happening again. But when she returned into the house, Luigi was shouting at his father, waving a packet of cigarettes in his face. 
Both grandparents smoked and both grandparents were in the habit of leaving lit cigarettes down and forgetting about them. No one was blaming her, but Carol was on edge. She couldn't cope with this happening again. She wouldn't be able to understand how this could be happening again, but no one was blaming her. Later that evening, however, Carol happened to be walking behind the grandmother across the living room when there was a loud thump. Carol looked around and there on the floor was a small religious statue. It had been on a small side table next to the put-out bed that Carol slept in, but it was feet away from where she was now standing. She didn't know how it had moved and fallen, but as Carol looked up she realised the grandmother was watching her with a look of pure disdain. Things did not improve. The next morning, Carol was awoken by a loud thud. Her pull-out bed was in the living room and she sat up and looked around. Daniela was standing there. Did you hear that, Carol? she asked. As the grandmother entered the room, they all realised that a heavy silver cake stand that had been in the centre of the dining room table was now on its side on the other side of the room. Daniela and the grandmother looked at Carol and left the room. Later, as Carol made her bed, a blue vase that was on the table next to the TV fell from the table and smashed onto the floor. Again, Daniela and the grandmother entered the room, and again, they stared at Carol with shock and disdain. Carol distinctly heard the grandmother mutter in Italian and heard the word strega, but did not know what that word meant. Carol was confused and terrified. She couldn't understand how and why these things were happening. At first, it just felt like random accidents. But now it felt intentional, but she knew she wasn't doing it. She knew that, but no one else did. She seemed to somehow be doing everything wrong. Daniela had given her a drawer in her bedroom, for example, to store her underwear. And when Carol snuck in to get some fresh underwear before her shower, Daniela had shouted at her and berated her for going into the room when the baby was sleeping. Carol's cheeks again stung with embarrassment as she stood outside the bathroom door, waiting for the grandfather to finish so that she could jump in the shower. She became aware of a scratching noise. Scratching and crackling. She called, Daniela, can you hear that? I think the cats want to come in. Except it wasn't the cats trying to get in. Smoke began billowing out from under the door of Daniela's room. The mattress was on fire. And little Agnese was peacefully sleeping on the other side of the mattress. This is where our story gets dark. The family called the police and physically threw Carol out of the house, screaming that she was evil and had tried to murder the child. When the police arrived, the family insisted that Carol was strip-searched, looking for a watch that was apparently suddenly missing. This was the first Carol had heard of it. And after Carol was strip-searched, and as she was being driven away in the police car, Daniela found her watch in a drawer. Carol was charged with attempted murder. Her time of being arrested and detained is described in detail in the book. And it is truly harrowing. She was treated like any other prisoner, but she understood nothing. 
No one spoke to her in English and she only knew crude Italian. So for days, she had absolutely no idea what she was even being charged with. She spent days trying to get into contact with Marco. And when she did, he broke up with her. And then the headline started. The girl they called a witch. The newspapers loved the story and soon... Firestarter by Stephen King, a novel about a girl who starts fires with her mind, was the number one best-selling book in the country. And interestingly, with this media furore came some unexpected offers of help. From parapsychologists, pyrokinetic experts, paranormal experts, people who suggested that Carol had started these fires subconsciously with her mind. Rosa, the maid for the Ricci's, was interviewed by the Italian papers, She stated that pictures of the Madonna had spun around and fallen off the walls when Carol was near, and that a pot of cold water had inexplicably begun to boil in Carol's presence. Emanuela Ricci had stated that little Emanuel had hated Carol, that he cried, Mummy, she's burning, every time Carol had picked him up. She also stated that she suspected Carol had started the fires straight away, right from the very first one. The ins and outs of Carol's time in prison are again outlined in detail in her book, but are not relevant to our understanding of the story. But it is important to reiterate that it was a trying and terrifying time for her. There is also, of course, a description of her time on trial, and some again is not relevant to this telling of the story, but there is something that is important to point out. The stories of Carol's trial depict her being tried in a metal cage. Even the image of her on the front of her own book depict her as being behind bars. Most of the stories state that Carol was placed in a cage in order to appease superstitious Italian attendees of the court, but that is not strictly true. Carol was initially placed in a cage, but it seems that so was everyone who was tried in that courtroom. The girls in her cell had warned her about the cage before her court date. So it seems that it was par for the course in that particular courtroom, and she knew about it in advance. Early on in her trial, her representatives asked for her to be removed from the cage on the grounds that it was both unnecessary and inflammatory, and the request was granted. It was one of the things that drew me to this story, this woman who had been tried in an iron cage, a modern-day witch trial, But the reality is somewhat different and it struck me how a relatively small detail in a story can be shifted slightly to enhance its apparent paranormal appeal. But that does not mean that the paranormal elements of this story are over. Far from it. The evidence in this court case pointed to some very strange happenings in this story. A key expert witness was the chief fire officer who had investigated the original three fires in the Ricci family. He stated in court that, of course, he was suspicious that three fires had started within the one household. He believed that the fire on the mattress began on a pile of newspapers and blankets and travelled downwards into the mattress. He stated that another fire had started on a stool and then gone out again and then had begun again inside a wardrobe a couple of feet away. There were no signs of flammable liquids found at either fire and no signs of faulty wiring. It was estimated that the fires suggested that a much longer time frame would have been needed to start them 
and for them to be as advanced as they were, than the time that Carol was seen to have had away from witnesses. This included the fire on the mattress on which the baby was sleeping. The fire seemed to be much more advanced than it would have been if Carol had started it in the time frame in which she was suspected of starting it. The chief fire officer said that he had never seen fires like these before. Another fire expert and witness said that there was no possible way that the fires were caused by any naked flame like a lighter or matches. But they were caused by an intense heat source, but not a flame. He claimed that the fires were very unusual and he could not explain their origins or even how they worked. Again, he also said they seemed to burn downwards, which was very unusual and they seemed to only burn in one specific place and not spread. On one of the court dates, a woman burst forth from the gallery and threw water over Carol and her mother. It turned out to be holy water and she was ranting and raving about the devil coming to her in a dream that Carol and her mother had fire inside them and that she was trying to save them. Of course, this was deliciously salacious drama for the newspapers to report on. Carol Compton was found guilty on two charges of arson and one charge of attempted arson. Because she had spent 17 months in prison, her sentence was suspended and Carol Compton was free. When the courts released their reasoning behind the sentence, they wrote that they believed that Carol had started the fires because she was miserable in Italy away from Marco. There wasn't any evidence in this report that suggested how Carol had started the fires, only that they believed that she did. Carol went on to marry and have children and live a relatively normal life as far as we know, but there are many paranormal experts and indeed enthusiasts who believe that Carol Compton's story is one that demonstrates the phenomenon of pyrokinesis. It is not the first time we have discussed pyrokinesis on this podcast and it is something that is fascinating. The court verdict explanation went on to say that Carol had started the fires but there does not appear to be any evidence that she did or any evidence that would point to how she did it. In fact, the expert testimony suggested that it would be impossible for Carol to have set these fires at all. But someone, or something, did. And Guy Lyon Playfair, world-famous paranormal writer and investigator, seemed to think that it was indeed paranormal. In his summation of his opinion on the case, he references other cases of spontaneous fire starting. In Brazil in 1970, a total of 16 fires broke out for no identifiable reason in a family home in a small town in the state of Sao Paulo. The local police chief and his forensic expert witnessed these fires starting spontaneously with their own eyes. They witnessed a mattress begin to smoulder and burn from the inside out and the chief of police went on record to say that he literally watched a calendar in front of his face burst into flames. In Holloway in London in 1978, firemen were called to a flat seven times where things were catching on fire on their own. A couple lived in the flat and no children. On one occasion, a box of matches burst into flames, but the matches themselves inside the box remained intact. When interviewed, the chief fire prevention officer stated that he had never seen anything like it and had no explanation for what had happened. 
Playfair notes that spontaneous combustion, of course, does happen naturally. For example, rags soaked in linseed oil can combust in confined spaces in hot weather, among other things. Playfair outlines what he would have said at Carol's appeal to clear her name. And perhaps it is fitting to finish with this letter, as laid out in the afterword of the book Superstition, as written by Playfair. We were told at the trial that Carol's background and situation fitted the profile of a pyromaniac. Yet we were not offered a scrap of evidence that she was one. And all the evidence I have heard fits another profile perfectly. That of somebody who serves as a focus for what is called poltergeist activity and which has nothing whatsoever to do with witchcraft. In any case, witches were never noted for starting fires. Nor are young women today, except in the purely fictional works of Stephen King. The word poltergeist is one we use for something we don't understand. It is an emotive and misleading one, for we are probably not dealing here with a noisy spirit, which is what the German word means, but with a syndrome, a collection of symptoms that combine to produce certain effects. So, let us forget about poltergeists and adopt the term used by parapsychologists. Recurrent Spontaneous Psychokinesis, or RSPK. Professor Bender has studied 60 such cases in three countries and has found they show what he calls transcultural uniformity, meaning that exactly the same things happen in different cases. Even minor details are often identical. He also reports that paranormal combustion is a well-established, if relatively rare, symptom in the RSPK syndrome. I've produced independent testimony from police and fire officers that identical, inexplicable fires have been well observed on cases in which other RSPK symptoms, such as stone throwing or small object displacement, have been reported, as they were at Elba. Now, if Carol is an RSPK victim, which is what the facts suggest to me and many of my colleagues, then she cannot be found guilty of any crime at all. The whole point of RSPK is that the epicentre, the person around whom the activity takes place, has not the faintest idea what is going on. Such people have no conscious involvement with the phenomena and are usually scared stiff by them. In many cases, they have fled their own homes something most people will not do without good reason. All we could say about Carol is that she suffered a brief personality disorder brought about chiefly by continuous stress. This in turn had a number of possible causes, from the separation of her parents, her own separation from her mother and her own country, to her third enforced separation from the young man she hoped to marry. And her feelings of discomfort on first arriving in Elba undoubtedly helped increase the level of stress. Indeed, it may have been her employer's attitude that raised it above the critical level. Was she guilty of this? Is it a crime in Italy to have a psychosomatic disorder, which is all she had? Do you arrest people for catching German measles? Then why arrest somebody for suffering from a condition caused by external factors over which she has no conscious control at all? She is not insane any more than she is a witch. Or SPK syndrome only affects people of sound mind who are undergoing a period of disturbance that is usually very brief. 
When the conditions that led to it are removed, the disorder cannot develop. As a loved and loving mother and wife, she will never have any more experience of it. All the evidence indicates that RSPK syndrome is a disorder you can only have once. That is the good news. It is true that damage was done and a life was in danger. Mercifully, little Agnese survived. Yet, even if she had not survived, how can we blame Carol for an accident in which she had no conscious involvement in at all? We have no idea how RSPK causes its effects. And many of us prefer to pretend that it does not exist, yet it does exist. There is too much well-documented evidence. There is even evidence that it can be created to order, as I have experienced for myself in the company of Kenneth Bachelor, a clinical psychologist who spent more than 20 years experimenting in his own home with a procedure based on the traditional table-tapping seance. He has not only succeeded in producing RSPK in various harmless forms, but he has gone far towards explaining why it occurs, if not how. His theories are not at all easy to summarise briefly, but one important feature of them is that RSPK can only develop in a group. People cannot produce it by themselves. In fact, there is not a single case of RSPK on record in which there was only one person involved. Carol could not have started the fires on her own, except by normal means, even if she had wanted to. Let us all concentrate our minds on the facts and the precedents. Your own experts have testified that these fires were not normal. English, French and Brazilian experts have come to the same conclusions on similar cases. Naturally, I cannot prove that the Elba and Ortisai fires were started by group-generated RSPK. But it is possible to disprove this by finding a more usual explanation, which nobody has yet done. If ever a case had an element of reasonable doubt, this is it. I ask you to do three things. Declare Carol innocent on all charges and compensate her for the 17 months in jail. Rule that the cases of the Ortsai and Elba fires are unknown but strongly suggestive of group or SPK and urge that some serious and long overdue research is done in this baffling but real corner of the human field. Whether we choose to believe it or not, there will be more cases of RSPK. More of its innocent victims will find themselves accused of crimes they never committed. Spare a thought for them and those defending them. Carol Compton's long ordeal need not have been entirely in vain. Guy Lyon Playfair, 1990. Okay, there's so much going on in this story and I don't even know where to start, but let's start with the fact that there were five fires in 23 days and the common denominator was Carol. That is a fact. But there is something about this story that just does not sit right with me. Something about it seems off. And I don't know if it's because I read the book and the book is from Carol's perspective and I feel like There is something off about the way she tells the story. Or if I'm just being a cynical, critical bitch. I don't know which one it is. So the entire way through the story, Carol maintains that, you know, she she gives her account of events and that she didn't start the fires. That these things happened around her, like the picture falling off the wall, the cake stand being flung, the vase, the religious statue, right? 
she maintains that there she wasn't involved in any of those things. She doesn't know how they happened. But she sort of simultaneously goes from saying that those things were just weird coincidences. And then at the end of the story, apparently she says that those things are weird and creeped her out at the time. Which there didn't seem to be evidence of that within the telling of the story that she found it creepy or weird or was freaked out by these things that seemed to be moving spontaneously. And in the court report, apparently that is a thing in Italian courts that after a verdict has been reached, the court has to release a report that explains why they came to that verdict. And apparently they said in this report that Carol had somehow, however she had done it, caused these events. So she had caused the religious pictures to fall over, the vase to break, etc., etc., in order to create a dis- an, ap- an atmosphere of discomfort in the households that she was actively trying to create an atmosphere of discomfort. Now, from what I can gather, there isn't any evidence of this. There isn't any evidence that she physically did these things to create an air of discomfort. That just seems to be something that a conclusion that the court came to based on psychological evidence, etc., etc. So there wasn't anybody who said, I physically saw her throw the vase on the ground or I physically saw her put that statue on the floor. It seems that the court was saying, well, she was the common denominator in all of these events. So therefore she must have done done them and we need to figure out why she must have done them. Well, the only reason she must have done them is to create an air of discomfort. The psychological aspect of this court case is really interesting because Carol maintains that she passed a psychiatrist's exam. Like she was seen by multiple psychiatrists over the 17 months that she was in jail. And she maintains that, you know, for some of them she passed, whatever that means. And, you know, then there was a psychological report that said in the court case, look, she ticks all the boxes for being a pyromaniac. And I don't know if we still call it a pyromaniac or just an arsonist, but she ticks all the psychological boxes. And there is a pathology behind arson in its truest form. So I'm not talking about arson where teenagers are bored and they set fire to something or somebody sets fire to something out of revenge in order to hurt somebody or destroy evidence. I'm talking about people who set fires due to a compulsion. And there is a psychology, a pathology behind arsonists. And often it's, um, you know, you're, you're more likely to be an arsonist if you're a man. You are more likely to be an arsonist if you have been abused sexually, physically, psychologically in your childhood. There are lots of reasons. Psychopathy can often be linked to arson. You know, and really interestingly throughout the book, we see Carol's perspective. And then in the court case, the people who come and give evidence. So the first family give evidence and the second family give evidence. And they, she maintains that they all make up lies about her. Um, that the things that she that they say happen or the way that they say she behaved that isn't how she behaved in the household and that's kind of the nature of court cases right and it's also the nature of truth like truth isn't objective so my experience of something and your experience of some of the same thing might be entirely different and what I mean by that is we might be in the exact same situation and witness the exact same event but our experience of it might be completely different. And we both firmly believe that what we are saying, what we experienced is the truth of the matter. And I think fundamentally, like I said, there were five fires in 23 days and the common denominator was Carol. Fundamentally, something happened. Whether Carol purposefully started the fires or whether Carol 
start these fires subconsciously because of pyrokinesis. Those are the two options because I don't believe that a coincidence that strong would happen where these five fires just happen to happen over the space of 23 days and this one girl was present just coincidentally for all of those fires. So say if we take the stance that it is pyrokinesis, that she did this subconsciously with her brain, didn't didn't realise she was doing it. And as Playfair wrote, it takes a perfect set of circumstances for this to happen. So a group of people who are distressed together and one person who is the epicentre and pyrokinesis will happen, right? Why didn't it happen when she was in prison? So if the fires were caused spontaneously by Carol and supposing they were caused because she was really upset, she was embarrassed and then there was people in the household who were angry with her, etc, etc. Then why were there no fires in prison where she was angry, upset, terrified in the most extreme ways and she was also surrounded by other people who were angry, upset and terrified probably in equally as extreme ways. So all of that energy was still there while she was in prison But yet there is no evidence of any fires starting when she was in prison. There is no talk of anything strange happening around her, near her, in her vicinity when she was in prison. And I don't know if that's me just giving a very simplistic view of it or a very contrarian view of it or taking a stance that's very, well, if she's able to start fires here, why can't she start them there? But I just feel like if we're if we're speculating about about pyrokinesis and we're saying well in these set of emotional circumstances that is what happens this person becomes the epicenter they start fires you know with their brain or whatever why then did it not happen when the situation continued to get worse when it got you know increasingly more dire why did it not happen then and I do find Playfair's letter really interesting because I think sometimes, and I think we all do this, you fall into the trap where you want things to be real so you find reasons for it to be real. I think, so for example, you know, in the case of the Enfield poltergeist, there was a an investigator involved called Maurice Gross and he was a paranormal investigator and his daughter had very sadly died in an accident. And I have often wondered when I read about the stuff that he did after that, whether or not what he was searching for was the paranormal or what he was searching for was his daughter or proof that there was an afterlife for his daughter. And look, you can't blame him for that. None of us can. You know, we we would probably all do the same thing in his situation in some way, shape or form. And I do wonder if it is the same situation here. So Playfair and a number of other paranormal experts, like I alluded to in the story, wrote numerous times to Carol and her legal team in order to become involved with this case. And her defence offered that they use pyrokinesis as a defence for her. And apparently throughout this, she said no, because she didn't believe it and she wasn't interested. Her mother thought they were just busybodies who wanted to get involved in the situation and also wasn't interested in having paranormal experts involved. So Carol did not believe that she had sort of, you know, done this with her mind subconsciously. But obviously there were a lot of people out there who did, who desperately wanted to be involved in this case. Now in Playfair's letter where he's like, you know, if I was writing for an appeal, this is what I would have said. He talks about how there is no evidence that Carol 
actually did this. There's no evidence as to how she did it. She happened to be there for all five fires, but nobody can give evidence and say she did it by using lighter fluid or she did it by doing this, right? Which is fair. That is true of the case. But his evidence for pyrokinesis is equally as woolly. He just alludes to a number of cases where he says, I mean, look, this happened here, there and everywhere and people believe it's pyrokinesis. And then he says, I have this friend who's a psychiatrist who has spent years proving that pyrokinesis is real and he's done it. So, you know, it does happen. But that's not evidence. That's just anecdotal and it's hearsay and it, it doesn't actually prove on the other side that pyrokinesis is real. And I did absolutely actively try and reserve judgment until I got to the end of this book because I felt like, right, I'm gonna, I'm just going to go into this with an open mind and I'm going to take it all on board and then form a conclusion at the end. And I'd like to think that I did that. And my conclusion at the end, in my opinion, is that there is not enough evidence in this case to suggest that it was pyrokinesis. There isn't enough evidence to suggest that Carol did this with her mind. There also isn't enough evidence to demonstrate how she started these fires. But I don't think it's a surefire case of pyrokinesis like a lot of people think it is. And I think maybe perhaps people got tied up in this idea, the sensational aspect of the case. Like she's tried in an iron cage and and she was called a strega, which is a witch in Italian. And, you know, there was all these headlines about her and people were fascinated by the case. And that makes it alluring as a paranormal case, you know, because you want to go, whoa, this is a witch that is being tried in the modern day and it's in the public eye, but it is evidence of the paranormal. And I just don't think that it is. And there is a lot of really interesting stuff in, in the psychologist's report that was, you know, done during the trial that was given in evidence where the psychologist said, you know, she was she, she seems to be emotionally immature for her age and she seems to have been really unhappy at the time and blah, 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 blah. And actually, there's something about the way the book is written that to me demonstrates some sort of emotional immaturity as well. And I'm not quite sure exactly what that is. Now, obviously, this book was written with Gerald Cole, right, who is a co-author in this book. So I imagine she maybe dictated the book to him or he ghost wrote it for her or helped her write it, whatever it is. It's really interesting when you get to the court case bit that you have this this woman, this Carol, who, you know, is is our narrator. She's our narrator and she's telling us the stories. And every person that she has come across in Italy Uh, seems to have lied about her, including Marco, the man who she thought she was going to marry. He lies about her and as do the Ricci's, as do the Tonti family. And maybe I am just being too cynical, but to me it would seem wild that everybody that you meet in in, in Italy, for whatever reason, would see things completely differently than you do. And maybe I've just watched too much House. You know, if you if you watch loads of series of House, you know that everybody lies. So who's telling the truth here? I don't know. Do you think that this is a case of arson? Black and white, simple, plain as day? Or do you think there is a possibility that this is a case of pyrokinesis and that Carol Compton was wrongly accused and wrongly imprisoned? I, for one, am not leaning towards it being pyrokinesis, I have to say. 
Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. As always, the sources for this episode are in the description. If you would like to send in your own story, you can do so by emailing it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast.gmail.com. You can also check out the website reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And if you are desperate for some extra spooky content, you can subscribe to the Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content, as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad free. And on that note, I shall see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.